kids and teenagers that are in this room, one of the things when I was your age that I used to always hear about from my parents and from my grandparents and people in their generation uh, were references to the day that uh, the president, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated. And I remember that they could always talk about where they were when JFK was assassinated. And little did I know that um, I would be among a generation, unfortunately, that could recall an event so horrific that we remember exactly where we were and what we were doing when those airplanes hit the Twin Towers. 20 years ago, yesterday, our world has changed drastically. I heard somebody tell me uh, last Friday they were talking about pre-9-11, they actually got on an airplane with their library card. Remember those days. The world did change and There were many stories that we have probably all heard over the past week of of heroics that came forward from those attacks. But but the one that kind of always grips me is one that's very familiar, one of Todd Beamer. If you remember, if you if maybe if you're younger and you don't know this story, that there was actually a fourth plane. Two planes hit the towers, one hit the Pentagon, and one they think was really headed for the Capitol building. And this group on this plane that had been taken over by terrorists, um, Todd Beamer uh, made a telephone call. He noticed that not only had the plane been taken over by terrorists, but that it had changed direction. And he made a phone call. And that's when he found out the, the plight of all the other flights and made that infamous decision uh, to charge the cockpit and to, uh, and the plane went down. And everybody on board was lost. And when we think about that situation, when I think about what happened in that plane, one of the things that I think about are the words of Jesus, where Jesus says, no greater love has no man than this, that he would give his life for his friend. And I think one of the reasons that this account kind of sticks with me, besides the obvious, is that it is just a small, get this, as heroic as that, it was, it is just a small, small, small glimpse of the greatness of what Jesus did, of the greatness of Jesus giving his life for his friends, because when Jesus gave his life, it meant that thousands upon thousands and millions upon millions would gain eternal life. Because we, if we put our faith in Him, if we, if we put our trust in Him, if we put our sins upon Him, He went to the grave and He died and He lives so that we wouldn't have to die and so that we could truly live. And this is an amazing thing. And over the past couple of weeks, as we've been looking in the book of Mark, one of the things that we've been that has been in the the background and one of the things that I think has just been echoing through these scriptures and it's just it's just right here and it's supposed to just be right here in the in the foreground is this whole idea of Jesus telling his disciples once it is proclaimed that he is the Christ, Jesus telling his disciples that you are to deny yourself, pick up your cross and you are to follow me. And what is fascinating is that not only did Jesus give his life for his friends, but these disciples, these guys that we're looking at in this text, in just a couple of months, 
would live lives that would literally turn the world upside down. And that these men, who in a couple of weeks we're going to look at at the time of Jesus being put on trial, at the time of Jesus being arrested, would run and would hide, that these same men would live in such a way that they would make the gospel known to the world and that they would die, they would die for their friends in the proclamation of the gospel. And not only that, but as we look throughout the centuries, as we look through history from the time of the disciples, what God has done and is doing is calling a people unto Himself. And over the centuries, we can look and see men and women stand in faith and they give of themselves to such a point that the gospel is going out and the gospel is spreading and that we are here proclaiming the gospel as well. And what we have to take note of is this, is that the work is not finished and the plan for the spread of the gospel is you. If you have put your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ, the greatest job, the greatest thing that you have to do is to be a proclaimer of God and His glory to the world. And this rattles many of us, doesn't it? This idea rattles us. It shakes us up. And many times as... I know as I've sat and listened to messages that maybe have started or ended this way with this call, with this proclamation of what we are to be about, I often get a little overwhelmed as well and think, no, 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 not me. I'm too weak. My faith isn't strong enough. I don't have the courage to proclaim. We shrink back. And unfortunately, I think what many of us do is we shrink back to a place and we're just waiting for Christ to return. We're just sitting back and we're waiting for Jesus to come back. And that's not what He has for us. That's not what we're called to. You know, one of the things that we see in this text, and I think it's one of the things about our life, is that isn't life filled with spiritual highs and spiritual lows as a believer? I mean, all of us could recount times in our spiritual life where we just really felt the presence of the Lord and that He was meeting with us and we were just like high on this spiritual mountaintop and then all of a sudden, real world kind of kicks in. And maybe we're just in this really good place and then we come home and our kids are just acting crazy. Or maybe kids, you come home and your parents are acting crazy. Or, or maybe, you know, for some of us, you know, the Lord just works in our life and then all of a sudden we find out that, you know, maybe we're sick or someone that we love is sick. And this is often the picture of life, of these spiritual highs and then life, the chaos of this world kind of creeps in and it kind of gets us and it sucks us back in. And this is the reality. This is the reality that these disciples are living in. Last week, if you were with us, understand this. Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John, 
literally to a mountaintop. And remember what they saw. They saw Jesus transfigured, transformed, changed in front of their very eyes. I think that the language that they were using to try to even describe what was going on, that they were just kind of grasping for imagery, saying it was so white. Not only that, but remember they saw, they saw Moses and Elijah. This was so great that Peter just wanted to, remember he just wanted to pitch some tents and just stay there. Then they heard the voice of God. And can you imagine the spiritual high that these men are on as they're walking, hiking back down this mountain? And it has to be interesting as Jesus told them that you can't tell anybody until the resurrection. Because I'm wondering if I was there, if I would be saying, yeah, but does he, does he mean the other nine? We can tell the other nine. We've got to tell the other nine. They've got to know what just happened on this mountain. They had to be fired up. They had to be ready. And as they descended this mountain, they literally descended into a scene that was pure chaos. It was pure chaos. In fact, one, one theologian, one, one writer, pastor, notes that you know, there's a similarity between what they went through and what went on with Moses on Sinai. That Moses met with God on Sinai and he comes down and what he finds is that the people had just gone into complete chaos and worshiping idols. And so they, trans, they come down this mountain, they descend this mountain and they get there and look in verse 14. And I think if I was one of the three disciples, this would be disheartening. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd and some of the scribes arguing with them. I think if I was one of the disciples, I probably would have been like, oh no, not these people again. Can we just get a break from the crowds and the scribes? This is a scene that's just repeated over and over and there's chaos. And then look in verse 15. They come down and immediately the entire crowd saw him. They saw Jesus. They were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with the spirit, which makes him mute. And so obviously what had gone on is word had gotten out that Jesus was in this area. Word had gotten out and this man who had this son who was in this horrific condition said, okay, well, here's my chance. I'm taking this boy to Jesus. And then other people understood that he was going to take this boy to Jesus. And then the religious leaders get involved. And this crowd comes around. And they're all going to Jesus. And there's only one problem. Jesus isn't there. Jesus isn't there. He had gone to the mountaintop. Look at verse 17. When this man said that he came, he said, notice he says, teacher, I brought who, my son? I brought you, my son. This man was bringing his son to Jesus. And then look at the desperation and the pain. Look in verse 18. Whenever this spirit seizes this son, it slams him into the ground. He foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth. He stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out and they couldn't do it. 
Can you imagine being in this father's place and having a son that was suffering with this spirit and this spirit was doing this to your son? That this spirit was trying to destroy your son? The desperation of this father and as he brings this son to Jesus, Jesus isn't there. And so in this moment, the disciples will have to do and the problem and the hubbub that got everybody stirred up was the disciples were unable to do anything. And one of the things we have to ask is, what's the problem? And in Mark chapter 6, we remember that we, we called it, you know, Jesus was sending the disciples out. Mark tells us that he sent the disciples out and he gave them the authority to cast out demons. And so what's the problem? We know that in just a few short months that the disciples are so powerful that we learn in Acts chapter 5 that the people are bringing the sick and the lame just to be in the shadow of these men and are being healed. So what's the problem? I imagine when this man got there with his son, that he was probably a little disappointed that Jesus was up on the mountaintop. Maybe he was content to wait, but the disciples were like, no, 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 I got you. I got you. And I can imagine them, "Ah, maybe I want to wait for Jesus. No, 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 we got you. And maybe the disciples gave their resume. No, we've done this before. You should have seen this guy over here in Capernaum, and man, blah, 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 and then this one, and this one, and this one. And so the father was finally relented, and They were unable. And I want you to notice something in this text that I think is not subtle, but that we miss it. I think that because the disciples were unable to cast out this demon, that it created doubt in this father. You see, as this father was standing before Jesus, Look at what he says. Look at what he says in verse 22. He says, it's often thrown him both in the fire and into the water to destroy him. But notice these words. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. The words this father uses is he doesn't say if you're willing. He says, if you are able. And I just wonder. This is speculation, but I wonder, and I think it's here in the text, I wonder if that the reason this father uses this language is because the disciples weren't able. And they were representative of Jesus. Maybe the father at this point just thought, maybe this whole Jesus thing, maybe these are just rumors. Maybe it's not real. When I first moved back to Chattanooga, I had a buddy named Tim. Still have a buddy named Tim. He was a high school friend, and he was remodeling houses in North Chattanooga. And I didn't, I wasn't very good with uh, anything. <laughs> and so he kind of brought me along, and so I would go work with him, and I learned a whole lot of things with Tim. Tim was just a master, uh, and I hope he doesn't watch this because he doesn't need his head to be inflated. But he was just masterful when it came to carpentry, anything, building. Uh, he was just awesome. 
And so I remember there would be nights, this one night in particular, we were working, we were putting up crown molding, and we were just like knocking it out. It was just beautiful. We were doing it. And then Tim leaves. And he leaves me and another guy to do this crown molding. And I don't know if you've ever done crown molding, but it seems easy enough. But we just couldn't get it done. We were just banging our head. We just kept trying and we were wasting lumber. We were felt like idiots because when Tim was there, we just boom, got it right up and we're just flying through. Tim would even sing songs and make fun of us as he was doing this and he could just knock it out. And all of a sudden Tim leaves and we are in a world of trouble. Everything fell apart. These disciples were in a similar place. Tim, you know, we didn't get anything done. And he comes back and he's like, what are you doing? Didn't I teach you how to do this? And we're like, yeah, it's me. These disciples were in this similar place. And Jesus leaves and they're here and they're in this apprenticeship and they can't do it. And notice what Jesus tells them. And this is important for us to understand. In verse 19, Jesus answers them. When, he, when the man says, your disciples can't cast out the Spirit. His, Jesus answers them. Oh, unbelieving generation. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And I think Jesus, when he's saying, oh, unbelieving generation, he's talking about everybody that's there. He's referencing the father. He's referencing the disciples. He's referencing the scribes. He's referencing the crowds. And he gives them this rebuke. And notice in his rebuke, he says, how long will I be with you? Foreshadowing this idea that I will not always be with you. And you have to learn to do this on your own. You can't keep relying on me to be here with you forever. He is preparing them. He is going back to the Father. He is going to ascend on high. And the plan is not for the disciples to sit around and wait for Jesus because there will be a day when he won't physically be there anymore. I don't think that he's only talking to the disciples here, but he's also talking to us. You see, Satan's scheme, Satan's scheme is to get us to doubt our faith and render us ineffective and useless in the kingdom. That's Satan's scheme. Satan has designed plans in and around your life To get you to doubt your standing in Christ. To get you to doubt the power of Christ. To get you to doubt the mission that He has put you on. And to render you ineffective. And unfortunately for many of us, it it works. (laughs) And here it is working. Look Look at everything that's going on. Look at this boy. And and think as a father, as a mother, as a parent, if you had a child that was going through this, I can't even imagine the, the doubt and the frustration and the hardship that would come in. Let's just look at this description again. 
He had a spirit which made him mute. And whenever it seized him, he slammed it to the ground and foamed at the mouth and ground his teeth and he stiffened out. And when Jesus saw him, when the boy was brought to him in front of Jesus, the spirit immediately threw him into a convulsion and he was falling on the ground and he was rolling at the ground and he was foaming at the mouth. And this father says that this demon was trying to destroy him by him being thrown into the water and him being thrown into fire. Satan's plan seems to be working. And then you've got this father of the boy losing faith. If you are able, Satan's scheme seems to be working. And then you've got these disciples that are bewildered and they couldn't perform the exorcism. They couldn't cast out this demon. Satan's plan, his scheme seems to be working until Jesus steps in. Jesus steps in. And I think it's fascinating what Jesus does. I think it's fascinating that when Jesus steps in, He asks this question. How long has this boy been like this? Now remember the picture. The boy, when he saw Jesus, immediately started convulsing. He's rolling around on the ground. And Jesus asked the question, how long has he been like this? Question... Does Jesus know how long the boy had been like this? Answer, yes. Why is he asking the question? I think the reason he is asking the question, maybe one of the reasons he is asking the question, is that he is drawing the crowd, the father, and the disciples from this poor boy that's rolling around on the ground. He's drawing them into a conversation with him So that their focus becomes Him. Their focus all of a sudden is not on this little boy. is not on the issue at hand. But their focus is drawn to Him. It's drawn to Jesus. And I love what Jesus says. It doesn't come across real well in in our translations. But in, in verse 23, remember the Father just said, if you can. And Jesus says this. And this is... A lot of, in a lot of your translations, there's an exclamation point because the way that he says it is, is, is an exclamatory way. If I can, it's, it's really like this, this if you can, this if I can, all things are possible to him who believes. And so Jesus takes the focus off of if he can because that's not in question and he turns the focus around and says the question is not if I can, the question is your faith. Do you believe? And we all love this Father's answer because the way this Father answers, the truth, the humility, the just exposure of where He really is, just rings true to us. And this Father says, I believe, help my unbelief. I love this. This is so vital for us. I believe, help my unbelief. Some of you here this morning may be saying this same thing. I believe in what God has done for me. I believe that He has died for me. I believe that He has set me free. But help my unbelief. I'm still hanging on to some 
garbage, some messages from the evil one that is just rendering me ineffective in my life. Some of you may say, I believe in what God has done in the past, but help my unbelief that not only was God working in the past, but that God is working in my life today and will work in my life in the future. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. You see, this is so powerful. And I think this phrase, I think what we see in the scriptures here has the power, has the power to help us overcome the schemes of the enemy, the schemes of the evil one, because in this moment, this honest, this real humble, we are giving over our power to make things happen and we are humbly admitting I believe, but my faith is weak. God, you're going to have to help build me up. There was a man that I used to eat with quite a bit. I used to eat breakfast with quite a bit. and He was an awesome man. And uh, I was telling him we were, uh, this is when I was at Crossroads, we were going to go pray. Um, a lady in the church had asked us to come pray for her husband who had Alzheimer's and just a dear, dear man. He had had Alzheimer's for a while. And she had asked us to come pray for her husband for his healing. And I was telling my friend Dave about this. And Dave said, you know, Lewis, do you believe that God can heal this man? And he said, Lewis, don't put a hand on this man in prayer until you believe that God can do it. So that day, my prayer became, God, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me believe that you can do this. You see, our lack of faith, our lack of belief, there's no like formula to boost that. You know, this faith journey, this faith walk is messy. And it's not like that God gives us faith and we kind of stay at this level, but it's this real messy progression. And it's not linear. It's messy. And it often comes in moments where we are at our wits end and we don't know what to do. And all we can do is cry out to God, I believe, but God help my unbelief. I'm at wits end here. You know, when I was working with my buddy Tim, the craziness of this situation is that all I had to do was call. We had cell phones in 2005, 2006. As I was stumped on this project, all I had to do was pick up the phone and call him, and Tim would have said, hey, you dummy, you know, turn it upside down and remember this angle and you cut it this way and it's fine. That's what Tim would have told me. The Lord doesn't treat us like that. But that's how Tim treated me. You see, Tim was right to be frustrated because I had the phone and he would have walked me through it. 
And I want you to, to notice something in this account. Verse 26, after crying out and throwing him into a terrible convulsions, it came out. Jesus healed this boy. And the boy came so much like a corpse that many of them thought he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up. And then sometime later, when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? That maybe they were understanding at this point that they needed to figure this out because maybe they were here beginning to hear Jesus' words that he was not going to be around forever. Or maybe they were just curious. But we need to hear this. Why couldn't they drive it out? We, church, are left here with a job to do and we need to know, this is an important question, why couldn't they help this man? It's a really good question. And he didn't tell them it wasn't... Hey guys, listen. When you run into a situation like this, just wait on me. I'll be back soon. Just, just hang out. He didn't tell them, you know, try harder. He didn't give them a formula of you walk around it four times. He didn't give them any of that. Notice he starts with something that I think has been uh, made into something not. In fact, the opposite. He said to them, this kind. This kind. This kind of oppression. This kind of demon. Whatever's going on with this boy. And I I think when we read the scriptures, we see that it's obvious that there are various kinds of demons. There's various kinds of oppression. And Jesus is saying, this kind. And unfortunately, unfortunately, people have taken this and conflated it and made this ritualistic formula of how you cast out demons in our day and age. And it's that you've got to like somehow get the name of the demon and that you say the name of the demon and then you're able to cast it out. I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He doesn't give them a formula to go through. And we don't see that formula throughout the rest of the New Testament. He doesn't give them an incantation. He doesn't give them a separate book of exorcism and say, here's how it works. In fact, I was listening to a podcast yesterday when I was running that strangely enough had something to do with uh, exorcisms. And they said that um, one of the things they noted is that historians were saying that uh, when the church uh, changed, one of the big pivotal moments that the church changed its way in which it tried to exorcise demons out of people was directly correlated to when the movie... Uh, exorcism came out. We are a fickle people. Notice his point. Jesus says this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Now some of your translations, especially if it's the King James, will have and fasting. In the original context, the fasting was not there. Many of us have learned this Bible verse that way. The fasting is absent from this. Jesus is saying, the only way this kind can come out is by prayer. Interesting, this same account, if we were to look over in Matthew chapter 17, the parallel account. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, 
because of the littleness of your faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to the mountain, move from here and there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. And so the question is, okay, well, which is it? Is it faith or is it prayer? Which is it? And the answer to that question is what? Yes. (laughs) And the reason the answer to this question is yes, and you need to hone in on this is because prayer is an act of faith. All I had to do was call my buddy Tim. I had to humble myself, let him know that I had no idea what I was doing, and he would have told me how to complete the task. And what our Savior is telling us is that in situations that we get in in life, that all we've got to do is call. This kind and various other kinds of life situation, it's only coming out through prayer. Because in prayer, we are humbling ourselves. We're saying, I don't know. I don't have the power. And the crazy thing about prayer and humility is this, is that the moment we do that and we acknowledge, God, I know that you can because you can do all things, we put ourselves in the most powerful position that we could ever be in. Do you understand that? This is the folly of all these crazy things that you see on TV of like Louis Belva healing ministries because it's not about Louis Belva. The power is about God. And we, we are to be a dependent people. And that's where we're most powerful. If you think back to Mark 6, where Jesus sent out these disciples and He gave them authority to cast out demons. Remember the other lesson that we learned from that? Remember when He sent them out He told them not to even take another coat. They couldn't take money. They couldn't take food. And one of the things that we talked about then is that He did this to teach them what? To teach them dependence. And here, in this account, the reason that they were unable to deal with this tragedy is that they had become independent. My question to you is, are you ready to roll? Like Todd Beamer on that plane, we are living in a world that is chaotic and that is headed in a direction that is doomed for destruction. And the question for us is that are we ready to act? Are we ready to roll? My assumption is that none of you this week will A, be on a plane that is heading to run into the Capitol, or B, you probably won't be around a little boy that's demon-possessed. And if those are the only two categories you leave here with, then you leave mistaken. Are you ready to step in and be who God has called you to be, salt and light in the situations that you are in? Maybe this week as you are going throughout, maybe you come across someone whose life has just got them so down that maybe they're 
maybe they're addicted to drugs and alcohol and they're just in, in a horrible place. Why don't you step in and help? And maybe you say, well, I don't know what. Call. Maybe you have a friend or a neighbor who is going through a horrific situation in their marriage and you have no idea what to do. Call. Maybe you're saying, Lewis, I don't have that much faith. And what I would ask you is, how much faith does it take? Matthew tells us the faith of a mustard seed, which we all know is a tiny seed. And what we get from this father, think about this logically, how much faith did he actually have? Not very much, but the key is he acted on the faith that he had. And what Christ is begging from us is that we would be like this father. You see, we are left here not to sit Not to wait, but to act. We, the church, have been put here in this time for a specific task. And the question that you have to ask, will you act in faith? Let's pray. God, I am so thankful for this text where we learn that even though we can't, you can. God, give us faith, give us strength, and give us resolve. God, don't let the scheme of the evil one trick us into this posture of sitting around and waiting because you have called us into action. Help us to be a people who live in such a way that we display you to the world. This is only possible in your son Jesus' name. Amen.